Today, we are featuring an episode on human trafficking. Our guest is the Honorable Virginia M. Kendall. Judge Kendall is a United States District Judge of the United States District Court for the Northern District of Illinois. Prior to her appointment, she served as Deputy Chief in the Criminal Division of the United States Attorney's Office in Chicago, where she worked for over 10 years. During her tenure as an Assistant United States Attorney, she was appointed to the U.S. Attorney General's Advisory Committee, which reviewed all multi-jurisdictional child exploitation cases, served as the Child Exploitation Coordinator in the Northern District of Illinois, and as the Coordinator of Project Safe Neighborhoods. Judge Kendall is the co-author of Child Exploitation and Trafficking, Examining the Global Challenges and the U.S. Responses. Judge Kendall received her Bachelor of Arts and Master of Arts degrees from Northwestern University and her Juris Doctor from Loyola University Chicago School of Law. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate, where law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for joining us, Judge Kendall. We really appreciate it. We're going to start off by giving you the opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself and what led to your current position. Okay. Thanks so much for having me, Haley. I appreciate it. Well, it's not as though I had in mind when I went to Loyola Law at night with three children under the age of five that I was going to end up as a federal judge one day or that I would be in any way an expert in human trafficking. I certainly did not pick those paths. They kind of fall upon you as you get older. But I did definitely went to law school because I wanted to get into the criminal justice system. Pretty bad advice, I think, for when you talk to young lawyers to be. They say, should I go to law school knowing what I want to do? And everyone says, don't pick yet. Find out. I went in because I wanted to be in criminal justice. I just love the way that our criminal justice system works, and I think it works well. And ironically, when I was a young lawyer, I actually applied for both the federal defender and the federal prosecutor's office at the same time. Had my final interviews days apart in one week. I don't know too many people that thought so highly of the system that either <laughs> side was fine. <laughs> I got the offer from the federal prosecutor's office first. And I did what I think most people do when they go into uh, the federal prosecutor's office here in Chicago is they think, well, I really want to be the cool public corruption prosecutor. Mm -hmm. That's what we do here in Chicago, <laughs> right? We indict our governors regularly. We indict <laughs> aldermen regularly. So I thought, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to stand in front of the Calder with my arms crossed looking like a tough prosecutor. <laughs> and instead, I, I got on one of very early days of my career on a duty day, a reactive case involving a little boy from uh, one of the western suburbs, near western suburbs, who had uh, not shown up at school that day, and his mother had called the FBI saying he was kidnapped. And, you know, kidnapping case is pretty cool case to get on a duty day, so I was all about getting out to the house to find out what was going on. And the truth was is that the boy had, had willingly, knowingly gone away with an older man. The person had been talking to him on the Internet. And, you know, for you, so young, you don't remember life before to catch a predator or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But this is back in like 1995 or so. 
And he had taken his hard drive with him, which was an oddity, and we traced him to Union Station, where he was with an adult, and he had changed his name, cut his hair, dyed his hair, had false identification, and was on a bus going to Florida. It was just so bizarre because the mother kept saying that she thought that he had been communicating with this man. Well, it turned out that this man had lured him by posing as some close friend, the same age, 12-year-old boy or something like that, and then had killed off that persona and said that his uncle was coming. It was just the most bizarre, strange story, right? In three days, we investigated that case. But the first thing we had to do was get the boy safe. And I remember at the time saying, what am I going to charge this guy with? Because he took him, but the boy went willingly, and consent was a complete defense, mm -hmm. right? So I thought, mm -hmm. what am I going to do? It didn't matter he was 12. And I remember going to my supervisor who said, you don't have a case. And I said, well, what, about, what if I disagree? <laughs> And she said, well, you could go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, if, I mean, go to the U.S. Attorney if you want. And, and it was a very sarcastic way she was saying this, not like she meant it. And I did. I called up the U.S. Attorney. And, you know, he was wonderful. He said, all right, listen, we'll stop that bus. We'll get that kid off. But I don't think we'll have a case going forward. And in the end, he did ask me, though, what are you going to charge this guy with? And I said, I think we can charge him with kidnapping. And he said, no, 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 consent's a complete defense. And I said, yes, but there's to seize, to confine, to carry away, to inveigle. And he said, what's that? And I said, I know I had to look it up too. <laughs> and it means to deceive, right? So we charged this man with, with inveigling this boy. And it really was the first time that everyone federally started thinking, oh, there is something different to luring someone with psychological control, hmm. with taking them out of their uh, lives through a psychological force, through a coercive force. And we did not have a statute at the time. That was five years prior to the uh, human trafficking statute being uh, enacted. It was, well, not enacted, actually, the, the Palermo Protocol being held, mm -hmm. the conference being held in the year 2000. So I started to fall into this investigation by saying, well, how do I find out about a chat room? How do I find out about where things are stored on these computers? And I didn't know anything. And of course, the ISP at the time was AOL. That's who, <laughs> right. what we did. So I was on the telephone with some technicians and the legal counsel of AOL, like every day, help me find this. How do I find this? And by the end, we had found a, a, a predator, really, who had been luring boys for years. Uh, many of these boys, he just was a chameleon. He turned into whatever he wanted to be to catch their fancy, to catch their attention, and then he became um, their buddies. And then, of course, what we found out was that he was bringing them down to his home in Florida, and there were all types of sexual rituals and filming, and his computer was loaded with child pornography. So that was so mind-blowing to me about how serious the crime was. But I have to tell you that back then in the U.S. Attorney's Office, these cases were really the stepchildren of federal prosecution. No one was doing them. No one wanted to do them. Mm -hmm. They euphemistically called them kiddie porn, which is a horrible thing to think of, the child exploitation of a minor, sometimes even as young as infants. And also prosecutors could say, I don't want to do that. 
and they were given permission not to do that, whereas every other case that came their way, they were required to do according to assignments. So I really picked up on the severity of this issue. My first few interviews of children across the table made me realize there really is no stronger good that I can do if I can bring this child back to some semblance of normalcy, of some semblance of, of a good life. And that's how it all started. And unfortunately, once you do a case, or fortunately, <laughs> once you do a case where you've learned how to investigate a certain type of crime and somebody else sees it in their jurisdiction, then they call. And so all of a sudden I find myself teaching other prosecutors and talking with other people about how to put a victim on the stand, how to display uh, scrolling chats out of a chat room, how to put an expert on who talked about ADD or psychological control, all of these things, and it just kind of kept getting larger and larger and larger. I did get to the public corruption unit, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and ironically, ironically, I never did one of the biggest high-profile public corruption cases, but ironically, my books and my teaching, I do a lot of work in the law school now showing the correlation between public corruption and human trafficking. So the human rights violations mm -hmm. that are actually nurtured, aided and abetted by mm -hmm. public corruption. So that's kind of a long story for how I got where I was. I certainly didn't pick it, it happened to me. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. So tell our listeners a little bit about the different forms of human trafficking because prior to attending your seminar and reading your book, I wasn't really aware and I think a lot of people, um, a lot of our listeners aren't aware of the different types of human trafficking. Right. I think that there is a really big misunderstanding about what it is and how it manifests itself. So I think the best way, if I could teach listeners what it means, is think of uh, a stronger individual who is looking for a more malleable person that he or she can use to make money and so he's going to use it through fraud, force, or coercion. That's the means of doing it. And the purpose of it is either for sexual exploitation or for labor. And then there's a little carve-out also for um, the selling of organs. So the simplest way to think of human trafficking is to think of vulnerabilities. Who's vulnerable in your community? I don't think it's necessary to carve out sex trafficking from labor trafficking. Many people do. But the truth is, is that the sex trafficking is a form of labor, the, mm -hmm. the sex act, which is a form of labor. And so they're actually part, of, they're just a, a way of making someone work mm -hmm. and of making money for the trafficker. So think of vulnerabilities. Who's vulnerable in your community? Poor people is, you know, poverty is number one. Poverty is probably the number one vulnerability for anyone. Mm -hmm. If you need to put food on the table for a child, then you are going to, you're going to do things that would prevent that child from starving. And then it doesn't take too much coercion or, or, or fraud to coerce you into doing something where you can make money to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So poverty is our number one vulnerability. But more than that, just think of all of the different ways you can be vulnerable. Old, old age, elderly people who don't have the ability to maneuver or who don't have as keen of an understanding of, say, uh, social media or uh, what is, what's going on in the community on the street, say. Young people, you know, if we put a two-year-old two in the studio right now, you know, she would not be very safe because we wouldn't know what she would grab onto. We would all be nervous. She's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. We certainly wouldn't leave her out in the hallway and let her walk around, right? Um, disabled people. 
people who do not have assimilation into a community. So if I took the two of you and I said, go off to another country where you don't speak the language, get a job, that's very difficult. And then one of the most important vulnerabilities is lack of documentation. So if I said, let's throw all of our wallets here in the middle of the table, all identification, you cannot have school ID, you can't have your passport, you can't have your real ID if you actually did that yet, you can't have your driver's license, nothing, go get a job. And I'll see you back here tomorrow. Would you be able to get a job? Well, yes, probably. You could probably get a job for cash, right? Cash where someone controls what you do, how you do it, and how much you're going to be paid. But you certainly couldn't get what we call a legitimate job, where you're getting benefits, where people are looking out for you as far as the work environment, where you're being respected for your gender or your race, where all of the Title VII laws apply to you. So when we look at vulnerabilities, that's what traffickers look at. They have their own idiosyncratic way of making money. So when you say, what is it? You have to look at the geographic area. What is Chicago's? We have a lot of sex trafficking. Not necessarily with gangs, although some of it is with gangs, but a lot of just very opportunistic men who uh, have a cadre of, of women and girls that they sell for profit. And that's like our one of our du jour trafficking uh, types. But we also have domestic worker trafficking. Uh, we have trafficking for domestic workers in our house, houses, for cleaning ladies, for uh, a number of uh, restaurant workers, for example. If you're looking in a, in a, in a rural area, you're going to look, is, do I have people picking strawberries or uh, seasonal laborers? Where there's a large influx of construction, and so when does that happen? Sometimes after a natural disaster. Go post-Katrina, post-Haiti earthquake, post-Nepal, right? Those are places where quick, fast labor needs to come in, and the traffickers always look at these opportunities to seize that vulnerability, to use it for profit. So it really is the largest human rights violation in the world when you look at it that way, because it has so many forms. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's a great way to look at it, too. I think, like you said, I, going into the seminar, thought of it as sex trafficking or labor, labor trafficking, but didn't think about the vulnerabilities and how many people are vulnerable, um, especially in the United States and, and Chicago as well. Right, and it, that's the thing that is so interesting about trafficking for me, because I do work all over the world, is that even though there's different means when I read about it or when I meet victims, it really comes back to that same uh, coercive psychological control. And the, the traffickers have just a keen antenna, antenna up where they, they sense it and they, they are able to hone in on it and they develop that coercion that just controls someone. It's interesting that you mentioned, um, you, you describe it as opportunistic men. And I think a lot of people perhaps consider in their minds the uh, you know the the image of a human trafficker is your uh, as you said the du jour boogeyman is the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world is that an accurate portrayal in terms of wealth wealthy opportunistic men taking advantage of 
poor individuals or is it it doesn't have to be the uber wealthy these are going to be people who just make a living doing this is that well I th that's a great question because i think what you see with the jeffrey epstein mentality there's there's no question that those who have status in our society who have wealth are able to use that in a coercive way and that coercion is a, a specific kind of trafficking, especially in that it has a, a shielding effect for law enforcement to explore. I mean, we've seen that in, for example, the Sandusky case, where you know someone remains in a position of authority, a position of respect, a position where, for for whatever reasons, we could list many of them, uh, we want to turn a blind eye to it. That type of trafficking exists. However, we could never say that that is the um, the, the, the typical trafficker because in many countries you don't have to be very wealthy and even some of the the traffickers that have been prosecuted in my courtroom they never get any forfeiture um, out of them even though the victims testify regarding a tremendous amount of income in cash turned over to the defendant and what seems to be the the behavior of the traffickers that have been prosecuted in my courtroom is simply to spend it, you know. Mm. And they're not the, the upper class. They're not, um, you know, a Jeffrey Epstein with millions or something like that. They are just people who are using uh, the women and girls at their uh, own pleasure, and then the money is just spent. You know, it's spent mm. on on cars, on videos, on, on clothes, on dinners, on alcohol, drugs, whatever. And there's, there's rarely a case where we actually obtain uh, a forfeiture judgment against that type of trafficker. Hmm. Unfortunate. Uh, in my, my research for this interview, a common thread was that women and girls involved in the sex trade were reluctant to approach law enforcement because they feared uh, they would be charged with crimes themselves and wouldn't receive the help that they need. Uh, how should law enforcement, is that something that you've experienced and, and witnessed, and how should law enforcement respond in a way that where victims feel readily, uh, you know, feel welcome to come forward? Right. Well, you're hitting upon what is a worldwide issue, not just a domestic mm -hmm. issue, and it is absolutely a reality to the victims. In many countries where human, I mean, excuse me, where public corruption is even greater than this, the public corruption that we see within our own communities, where it's so pervasive that the average person has a sense that all law enforcement is corrupt or on the take, there's no sense of these victims going to them for a safe harbor, right? So that you can actually look at the trafficking countries which are rated by tiers one, two, three, two watch list, and you can almost overlay Transparency International's corruption index and see like tier three countries are going to have like the same high level of uh, corruption index. So that there's a big correlation between the two. So it's not just that there's the corruption aspect, but traffickers are very good at manipulating the victims to make them believe that they will be turned over to the police or that they will be turned over to ICE or to whatever else it may be. So there is no sense that that's a safe harbor. So years ago we recognized this and I began training with the American Bar Association a task force model to law enforcement officers to train them about proper interview techniques about why the psychological harm that these victims are are receiving makes them a very atypical victim because law enforcement likes to come in on it like a white horse you know and 
rescue the victim, right? And then they're going to confront instead this very obstructionist kind of defensive victim who is evasive. And law enforcement, when you're evasive to them, that sends up the red flag. Right. Well, you must be hiding something. Sure. And that's when we have to really train law enforcement to recognize that this type of trauma is what we call a survival technique to get beyond their day, really. The task force model has law enforcement meeting with NGOs, federal and state prosecutors, and they're sharing information. And it's also a way to educate and we do need to educate. A few of the studies that have come out in more recent years um, have shown that lack of law enforcement and prosecutors' knowledge of trafficking makes them tend to charge the easier crime, okay? So you might pick up a, a trafficked victim and that's why you suddenly get a prostitution charge or a false identification charge because looking at the statute and not understanding or having been trained on it it's onerous and and you know it's a big criminal justice system chugging along and so the quick thing to do is to do what you know so it takes a lot of effort to continually train law enforcement mm. I appreciate you mentioning some victims coming before ICE because it's a nice segue I'd like to briefly discuss the T visa and for listeners who are unfamiliar, is a visa given to people who were trafficked to this country. Uh, in a recent article in The New Yorker, it was described that the T-Visa has proved to be a reliable safety net for survivors of trafficking with, and no viable alternative exists for those who are rejected or don't apply. And beginning in November of last year, the current administration began to require those who were denied a T-Visa to appear in immigration court, which is the first step in an immigration proceeding. According to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, part of the Department of Homeland Security, there were 1,062 T-Visa applications in 2015. Since the administration announced the change that took effect last November, there's a nonprofit uh, called the Human Trafficking Legal Center, which is an agency that assists trafficking victims in their T-Visa application. And again, since last November, they've not filed a single T-Visa application. Trafficking victims and their lawyers and advocates believe this plan to require victims to go through immigration court has had a chilling effect on T-Visa applications with the victims saying that they fear applying for a T-Visa is a path to deportation. I don't know how much you can comment about this in your position as a federal judge, but do you believe, as this New Yorker uh, article author said, that the T-Visa is a reliable safety net with no viable alternative? The T-Visa is such an interesting tool that the Palermo Protocol came out with because it's supposed to be exactly that safety net. It's supposed mm -hmm. to serve as that safety net. And so, so this, was, this was an international International. So all the 180-some countries, not the term T-Visa, but right. the 180-so countries that are uh, signatories to the Palermo Protocol were supposed to look at their immigration policies to determine whether or not they were giving these protections to the victims. And it was supposed to be this victim-centered approach. And when the TVs first came out, the concept, of course, it, it makes complete sense. It's what everyone sat around the table saying we should do. You either get to have a step forward to stay here because you've been a victim, much like a U visa gives a victim of a crime access to stay, or you get to be repatriated with the country from which you've come from unwillingly. And so the concept is a great concept. Originally it came under fire because of what it meant to be cooperative with law enforcement. 
And everyone said, well, if you're not actually testifying, then maybe you shouldn't get a T visa. That has luckily and and in good stead gone away. However, this concept that only, or I didn't know that so few of them had not been applied for under this new regime, so that's new to me. But what you should know is that there's 5,000 T visas every year. We've never come close to getting the applications for those T visas. Oh, you said there's there's 5,000 allotted. Available, gotcha. available, right. So okay. so the idea that, you know, we are down to 1,000 and now none are applying is really, it's just eradicating the purpose of it, right? Mm-hmm. So the concept behind it is that you're not supposed to feel that you are going to be deported, just the opposite. The, the preliminary mm-hmm. paperwork should be able to be reviewed. Now, it's complicated, work. Anybody who's done immigration work recognizes that, you know, doing any kind of visa work is complicated. And so it takes uh, people like this NGO that you've mentioned to aid people in doing it. And one of the things that we've pushed with uh, the American Bar Association is getting lawyers, young lawyers, to uh, volunteer to aid trafficking victims to apply for T visas because you can't really do it on your own. I think it takes, it takes too much But this new law, because I shouldn't comment on the laws that might come before me, if it is having the effect of eradicating the availability of the T visa, is certainly wiping out the purpose of what all of those countries vowed to do when they sat down back in the year 2000 to look at victims and recognize that they need this, either repatriation or to stay here within the country Mm -hmm. they've been brought to. So you mentioned earlier the importance of prosecutors and judges having adequate training. Tell us a little bit about how you travel internationally and help train attorneys and judges throughout different countries throughout the globe. So it's interesting because you could train all of the prosecutors and all of the law enforcement officers on the statutes, but if they can't get a conviction when they come to a judge because the judge is looking at it in a archaic eye, then you're never going to get any uh, movement on the criminal statutes. So that became pretty obvious early on because judges also are not accustomed to seeing this type of victim. And they certainly were not accustomed to recognizing a psychological control or force, uh, a con- you know, psychological force case that wasn't something like a fraud, right? So something where you were defrauded of your money, where you were defrauded of your property, the idea that you could be coerced into selling your body or coerced into working crazy hours and in terrible conditions. These are things that are not really common to our our structure up until this point. So it was very early on when I went to the bench that I think I got my first call from someone in OPDAT, the Office of Professional Development and Training overseas, saying, would you be able to talk about this with judges? And I thought, now we're really thinking about moving forward to educate everyone. So when I train, I generally meet with NGOs, prosecutors, defense attorneys, and the judges to understand the country's issues. As I mentioned, geographic region is is really critical to a better training. And then I have to prepare by reading all of their laws. Some, some are different and have different manners in which they come forward. And then I have to know the rules of evidence and their structure so that when I come in, my ideal training is to have that done up front and then sit down with the judges and prosecutors together and talk with them and show them 
the unique um, victimization of the crime. And I do bring them to their international obligations because they each write, their country writes a report. And I let them know, this is what your country has said about trafficking within your own state. So they, should, they can be aware that their own government has presented this. And then I do the same thing all over the United States. I, I'm meeting with uh, the Illinois state judges in February and March, I think a thousand of them, oh, wow. to, to train them about the, the uniqueness of the cases. So it's a little bit of, uh, <laughs> of, of hefty uh, pro bono work, but I, I do think it makes a difference. Uh, we've had some fabulous, fabulous uh, results in certain countries like Liberia was one where they never had a trafficking case and after training their prosecutors and judges and law enforcement, they had their very first one brought forward the year after we left with uh, members of our class being one of each. So one judge, one prosecutor, one law enforcement officer were all part of that training session. So they, you know, we can actually document that kind of uh, movement. And all we need is a few to go forward and then let those judiciaries analyze and how they they get their own countries to to accept or analyze it within their own ranks. Um, so it's not teaching anyone the American way. Mm -hmm. if that's not what it's about. And I don't need to do that because they're all signatories to this protocol. And if everyone signed on the convention and said, this is what we're going to do, it's easy to say, well, this is what we're trying to do here. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. Mm -hmm. You know, you brought up earlier about how much things have changed since that um, original case you brought up uh, for the boy here who was considering going to Florida. The internet has seismically altered the child pornography landscape. How, if at all, has technology changed or enabled human trafficking? Is it still just a battle of how to furtively transport people, you know, across lines, or is there a new technological component? Okay, so maybe I'll uh, remove some misunderstandings first. Um, Child pornography is frequently related to trafficking. Either um, children are brought in to create uh, child pornography or they are used for child pornography. Um, and so we see a big overlap between the two. Probably read that New York Times article just two weeks ago or so, mm -hmm. which was shocking. That was to tough see to read. The unbelievable increase astronomical increase in, in the distribution of child pornography. Um, and the other thing I just want to, in case there's a misunderstanding, we never have to cross lines for human trafficking. People think that you need to cross between states or between countries, but we don't. It's solely uh, the coercion. So you just need to have the fraud, force, and coercion. And okay. then you need to have either that you received someone, you transported someone, you transferred someone, you harbored someone. So you can have it like take place right here within your community. So gotcha. how does technology impact it? Well, my goodness. When I was first looking at child pornography back in the 90s in the U.S. Attorney's Office, a lot of our images were just still images, right? By the time I left the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2005, the majority were video clips, live molestations, right? Live? Live. I mean, you're, it's just a video, so someone's filming it. My last case in the office was a case where it was a whole group of offenders who were on a live feed while there was a molestation going on. So this kind of technology is aiding 
um, the distribution, no question, as you saw with that unbelievable story. But it also, and this is in, in our books that we mentioned, it also is this way of emboldening and reinforcing the behavior with those who are, are doing it. That's the one thing that we see psychologically. You know, in the old, old days, if you were sitting in your basement isolated from someone else uh, reading or looking at child pornography, it's not like you would go out into the neighborhood and talk to the person next door and say, this is what I'm doing. You know, you had to find these people a little bit. Mm -hmm. You have to really work on that. Now it's as simple as just, you know, being a part of a group. And most of the groups that we see, they're all communicative. Now in the sex trafficking area, all of the um, victims that are, are displayed for sex are generally displayed on a website. And that's how you are familiar, I'm sure, with the Craigslist and a back page. I'm not my Craigslist. I meant to say back page, which is like a Craigslist, mm-hmm. um, which was just taken down. Mm-hmm. And when I travel overseas um, with law enforcement, sometimes an FBI agent or someone will go with me. They'll go on with their protected computer. And no matter what country I'm in, it's the same thing with the same... Um, you know, vision, uh, visuals. And so certainly the way that you're looking for whether you want to get a new bike for riding back and forth to Loyola, there, you know, there's um, the, the, the appetite for purchasing children for sex is there all over the world and they just go on and pick what they want. So that's one thing to think about for the technology. The other thing to think about for technology is that um, since corruption and public, not public, but uh, Identification documents are so critical to the movement in labor cases like overseas. Just because we have these amazing abilities to create identification documents at the drop of a hat and we have the ability to create false documents that can be used in the transportation, that's a whole other aspect of ease. Um, But the thing that I think that uh, my colleague Marcus Funk and I have written about mostly with the technology is that it does have this emboldening behavior. It has mm. this sense that I am a part of a community that is an acceptable community because there's so many of us sure. and we share so much and, and we have it so quickly. And so what, what was uh, once acceptable as being like, I have this collection, do you have that collection? Now it's a one-upmanship. Let me go get another new piece and that insatiable desire to create more pornography child pornography uh feeds this um constant distribution it's tough to hear (laughs) i know i know it is i want to transition briefly to the labor side of human trafficking and there was a report by the global slavery index and it said that the five consumer products that were most at risk of being produced by slave labor slave labor are in order laptops computers and mobile phones garments, fish, cocoa, and sugarcane. Are there ways consumers can ensure what they buy isn't being produced by slave labor? You know, in such a way where if you want to buy organic, you look for that certain you know, right. label that you're seeing. Can they, can they guard against that? And are they contributing to human trafficking, la- the labor side of human trafficking, in ways that they wouldn't think they are? That's a great question because I'm going to step back one second. When you we just talked about law enforcement and we talked about T visas, we talked about a whole rubric of of care for victims that really comes in from the criminal mindset of of solving this problem, mm-hmm. right? We want the criminal justice system to solve this problem. And what is fascinating to me 
as someone who's been studying it for so long, is that we're in the year 2019, and I think that the international number of prosecutions, meaning every signatory, is about 13,000. So if the number of human trafficking victims is actually somewhere in the 38 million range, which is the latest numbers that are coming out of the TIP reports, 13,000 prosecutions and many, many, many less victims. So what you're touching upon is a really interesting aspect of a lot of progressive thinkers. And it started out back in 2010 with California. And California decided to enact this transparency and supply chain law. And the transparency and supply chain law required businesses who were doing business in California to a certain monetary amount and who were doing business with California to keep their supply chain clean of trafficked labor. And the way they were going to do this is they required these entities to post on a web page the steps that they've taken to make sure that every component of what they are manufacturing and the labor that is being used to manufacture is not part of a human trafficked source, right? Uh, they had sanctions with it, including debarment, uh, could be one possibility, uh, fines, and all types of potential consumer boycotts, right? That happened back in 2010. A number of states have enacted supply chain laws now. And the UK enacted an anti-slavery act in the year 2015, right around the time of the anniversary of the Magna Carta, which is, I thought, a hmm. beautiful way to look at their sure. new law. Australia has enacted one. And what all of this is doing is saying, shift your focus from just the criminality. Look first to see if any of our corporations are making money off of human rights violations. If you as a consumer care, you ought to be able to go to those websites and, and search. And people do care. And so a number of places have popped up, like uh, knowthechain.org, I think is one of them, where you can uh, see if your product that you're trying to purchase is, is one that has been reviewed by uh, an NGO that's checking on it. There is a movement to have a type of symbol on certain products, like you mentioned, for those who have gone through this operation of, of looking through the supply chain. And there is a movement to really recognize that it may cost us more money to purchase certain things, but if we're purchasing things that are so cheap, we have to question, how is it possible? And I think the best way to think of that is to go back to the 2013, I think it was 2013, Bangladesh uh, garment industry mm -hmm. collapse. And when that, when that garment building collapsed, I think it was close to 2,000 people died, and the vast majority were women and children. And there were warnings about that building, there were warnings about that, and most of these workers were making pennies, right? And there were many Western stores that were selling the T-shirts or pants or jeans or whatever it may be from that garment um, industry collapse. And so when you think about that, you start to recognize, well, maybe I do not want to buy the $2 pajama pants or something. Maybe mm -hmm. I actually want to look at where this is being made. Some of the more progressive corporations are way ahead and they're, they're embracing this, they're doing it without a law, 
They want you to feel good about your purchases. And they recognize that when consumers hear that they may have some consumer product that is actually made with trafficked labor, that they don't feel good about it. Mm-hmm. And we saw that happen when there were uh, reports of Nike shoes being built uh, made by uh, s- children. And there was a, a corresponding drop in their stock. Mm-hmm. And that was a one way of just saying, you know, the, the consumers who care about what they're wearing, what they're purchasing, can make that kind of difference. Now, legally, for those uh, of you who are interested, there were a couple cases that went forward uh, under the California Transparency and Supply Chain Act that were consumer cases. They did not survive, but I don't think that is the death knell for that type of case. They were against Costco and Nestle for a type of seafood that was used in making pet food. It came from Thailand. And what's so interesting about the complaint and a fascinating study on how these might move forward is that the consumer groups just filled the complaint with hyperlinks to Human Rights Watch reports, New York Times report, uh, I think it was called Sea Slaves, and all of these reports, including the tip report from Thailand that said the fishing industry is replete with human trafficking. And so it was an interesting a beginning case, I should say. It didn't survive. I think it was a standing issue for the consumers, but I don't think it's the death knell for that type of case going forward. And I will say this, and I, I'm going to sound like an old lady right now, but the truth is, is that your generation, this law school generation, is so much more aware than the generation, say, that I come from or my mother comes from. Because my generation is just learning, but every time I teach a law school class, I see students who are so much more aware of the terms, of what it means, of how it's happening, of what they can do personally. And just the fact that we're teaching it in law school, which we never did before, it says a lot about just awareness within the community. And I do think it's really possible. I mean, so I've been married for four years, and when I was shopping for engagement rings, you know, one of the things was has to be conflict-free. You know, whatever size you think your wallet can, can handle, it's got to be conflict-free. And they are now, one of the most popular things right now are lab-grown diamonds, but they're just totally made in a lab, and so you know that these are conflict-free. And I know that in the last four years since I, or five years since I was doing that, um, that shopping, they've just exploded in growth and that people are really responding to that well. So I'm glad to hear that you think that that is something that can really have a, a positive impact. Well, and that is a, a fantastic example. So conflict minerals is a part of human trafficking. A form of human trafficking in Africa is uh, not just the, the mining, but also uh, soldiers, you know, boy soldiers who are, are in, in employed in conflicts. And, you know, some of the movies that have come out in recent years have educated some people about blood diamonds Mm -hmm. and have, you know, educated them about that concept. And that's another aspect of awareness that is uh, is also changing. I just uh, was up 
in Wisconsin at this Freeland Film Festival devoted entirely to looking at human and animal trafficking from artists who are doing documentaries and short films and educating the public by these wonderful visuals that really tell a story that you and I can't tell simply in a podcast because the visual nature is so impactful, right? So I'm always encouraging people when they say, well, there's going to be a movie on this or that. That's fantastic. I remember when I was first asked about Taken many years ago when mm -hmm. it first came out, and people said, don't you hate it? Because it's not really you know, the typical human trafficking. I said, no, because if anything comes out mm -hmm. to educate, even the slightest bit, I'll take that <laughs> if it gets someone to go to their laptop and start putting in, Trafficking Victims and Persons Act, right? If that gets them to do that, wonderful, right? Mm -hmm. But that is an exact example. So the Conflict Minerals is part of the UK uh, Anti-Slavery Act, which is their supply chain law. Okay. And so there's a number of conflict mineral laws. There's federal regulations for bringing in different items into the United States that have been from trafficked human rights violations, including that type of, of thing like a diamond. I know I, my daughter was saying the same thing. I don't want a diamond because this is exactly the awareness that's coming out of this, and that's, uh, that's an interesting and wonderful transformation of awareness. Yeah. Well, Judge Kendall, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to have you uh, back again shortly to continue talking more on this topic. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thank you again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Allrutz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman. And our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thank you to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing us the resources and support to make the show possible. And thank you to our predecessors, the Dialogue DeNovo team for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.